0: Hmm. Do you guys get a notification that the call has started?
1: Um, yeah, I did.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. um, well, DJ, I'm really good. Just glad to see you again. And, uh, Eric too. Um, so, uh, you started talking about the fact that you've gotten back into the practice. Of just being alone for a little while. You don't have to go to the dark side of the moon. And spend 10 days there. Hello Marie. Hello Harry. Welcome. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So we had just started the call. And we have been. um, Discussing. uh, DJ getting back into the practice. uh, And that we were actually i was beginning to contrast uh the way that westerners normally see it as meditation is a big deal it takes a big thing it takes an hour to sit or you have to go to the dark side of the moon to the most expensive b and b to do a retreat okay to where you've got everything that you need to get your mind in a good state right here, right now. That basically what we need to do is to remember. That's the big deal is to be here now and to know it. Uh, And that part of that has to do then with actually getting into seclusion. And in a real way, all we have to do is close our eyes and then we're in a kind of seclusion. Okay, that you can be on the subway. And you can just not be on the subway. You can just close your eyes and let the clickety-clack be just part of your breathing. And so. um, This issue of getting away from it all and getting into seclusion is a good thing to do on a regular basis. Uh, Practicing for five or 10 minutes several times a day is actually going to help develop the skills that we need faster than if we practice for a long intense period of time, followed by a long time of not practice. So uh, in in that regard, (laughs) in fact, the joke is, is that here we have been in a mindful of hindrances all of these years. We practice intensely for an hour and yet we still have to deal with the hindrances in that hour. And then at the end of the hour, we have another 23 hours of hindrances. That in fact, what we need to do is develop by practicing it over and over again, we develop the skill of remembering. So if we're practicing throughout the day, we can remember throughout the day this is an important quality that we're uh developing these skills of remembering to come back to the here now to remember to take a deep breath to remember to look at kind of thoughts that we're having right now or the thoughts that we're having now uh someplace else that in fact uh dj just mentioned it this morning that the, uh that when he wakes up in the morning now he's beginning to start practicing right there in the bed. And normally what happens is, is that when we wake up in the morning, we begin to think about what could be done, what needs to be done today, what's going to happen, all of that kind of stuff. And that um, the way that, that we could do it then is to say, okay, I, I can have a little bit of freedom for the mind, but I'm not going to let it out of the yard. I can think about what's in the yard. I can think about what's in the house. I can think about what's in the bed, but I'm not gonna think about anything that's outside of that boundary. And then at another time we can say, okay, I'm not even gonna have thoughts about the yard. Let me just keep it for thoughts about the the house and the bedroom. And then later we can have, okay, I'm going to limit the boundaries again to the only thing that I'm gonna think about is just what's in this room. Anything that's not in this room will be remembered. We're going to remember to not go outside the room and stay in the room. Now, this can all be done within five minutes. And so the next one is, is that, okay? we're going to limit the boundaries now to just this bed. I can think about anything that's happening in this bed. But not outside the bed. Oh, well, now what what what's happening in the bed? Well, maybe if there is breadcrumbs from last night's supper that you ate in the bed, they're going to be in the bed with you. Do you feel it? What does the sheet feel like? Is it rough and wrinkled or is it smooth and flat? How about the posture? What body posture do you have? And how about the breathing? And then we come down to actually looking at the breath and recognize that this is life-giving. That, wow it really is nice to just lay here and be aware that i'm laying in the bed back home again but that's the whole quality that we're looking for is to coming home to arriving in that safe place and so the bed itself is possibly the most safe place that you have except The reality is, is that we sometimes when we're kids, the bed's not a safe place. And so we have to make sure then that the feeling is, is that the bed that we're laying in right now is safe, that we actually do feel safe. That we're not going to die so long as we keep breathing. That's all we have to do is just keep breathing. That that brings us back home again. And then we can investigate the body in the sense of, well, what kind of tightness do we have in the chest? Is there any difficulty in breathing? What's the difference between breathing through the nose and breathing through the mouth? All of these kinds of things that we could begin to play with to give yourself this, the, the comfort, safety, and security that everything is okay right now. Yeah, I'm going to get up in five minutes, but right now I can lay here and do nothing for the next five minutes because everything is safe and secure and comfortable and that we're home in bed. I mean, isn't that nice? And yet how many times do we wake up and all of a sudden now we're thinking about, oh, I've got to go do this for the boss and I've got to go shopping and the yard is dirty and the dogs are needing a bath and oh. <laughs> and so uh, these are the kind of things that we begin to think about in the morning. And then something will strike us. It says, oh, that's urgent enough to get me out of bed. So, what is it that's urgent enough to get you out of bed? Going to the bathroom? That's legitimate. So there, uh, whatever it is, we get out of bed. Nobody stays in the bed all the time until after they're 90 years old. Until then, something will happen through uh, while we're laying in bed after we wake up in the morning that gets us out of bed. What is it that gets us out of bed? Why am I asking that question? Because that's the motivating factor for almost everything. What is it that's motivating us? to go and do things, often to go and do things that are uh, not to our advantage. In a way, it's not really to your advantage to get out of bed. Yeah,
1: that's um, interesting at the end about the uh, advantage there, um, because that got me thinking about, too, like taking care, like you're, by taking care of like the present moment by just relaxing in the bed, it's much more beneficial than ruminating on the future and all that stuff. And I got to go to the work and all that stuff tomorrow. And what if I don't get enough sleep to handle work and all that stuff And your head is spinning rather than I can just relax right now and just enjoy that comfort and security. And, Oh, isn't this nice, you know? So you're taking, you're actually doing, you're taking care of the situation, but
0: you're not caring about, you know, you're not caring about it where you're clinging, yeah. Okay, yes, exactly. This is what we're looking at is to recognize that we do a lot of stuff because we're supposed to, even when it's not to our good advantage. That at the ultimate level, and in fact, I've heard this in the uh, the, the propaganda that they call news, um, that voters will oftentimes vote against their own best self-interest. Okay, so this is one of the things then that we can start to pay attention to. Well, what is really in this moment, what is the best thing that I can do for myself? What is my best self-interest? Getting that email done? Not necessarily so. (laughs) Getting rid of the panic that I have about writing the email. Yes. (laughs) And that in our society, we're taught that the only way to get rid of the anxiety about the email is to go write the email. Right? That's what we've been told. Oh, you're having anxiety because that email needs to be written. And if I go write it, guess what? While I'm writing it, I got more anxiety then when i press the send key i i think wait a minute maybe i shouldn't have sent that email yet (laughs) (laughs) and then after it sent, oh no what's going to happen after that email is gone (laughs) right so if we think of it from this perspective if we have laying in bed there the anxiety of writing the email Writing that email is not going to get rid of the anxiety about writing the email, getting the email out of our mind. Mm. It's going to be the only release from the suffering of that email is to remove the email. This is a thing that makes Buddhism so spectacularly. Um, subtle, profound and difficult to understand because we begin to recognize that we actually are going to be doing just the opposite of what we've been taught by our society. And that um, an actual easier way to, uh, to, to say it because this will confuse some people, and that is don't write the email until you're ready to write the email. And when you're uptight and anxious about the email, you're not ready to write it. So we're writing that email only to get rid of the anxiety for writing the email. Hello, Scott. Hello. DJ How's has been giving good reports about you. <laughs> oh, cool.
2: I also have good reports for DJ. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's <They're>
0: doing great. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes. So uh, in the past five minutes or so, we have been actually discussing uh, basically being in bed and being comfortable and actually allowing ourselves to be comfortable for four or five minutes before we get out of bed. But I would actually now use that as a segue into uh, another practice which is very, very similar to what we've been doing all along anyway. It's just um, it's got an anchor or a trigger to it. So in the regard of what we've been talking about so far, it's the waking up, becoming conscious and knowing that we're in the bed and the bed itself becomes the trigger. So now let's take that trigger to the chair. This is a very good practice for people who have actually gotten some establishment. If you try this without any uh, practice at all, uh, you'll feel like a failure at it rather than, um, let us say, a hill to climb. So we're going to be using the chair and the first question that I have for each one of you is how much time do you spend sitting in a chair? A lot, huh? Most of the time, most of the day. That in fact, we're either on our feet, walking around in a chair or in the bed. And we're already going to be devoted about a third of our time or more to the bed. How about in a chair? How much time do we spend sitting in our society? You know, we sit down at work at the desk all day long more or less. And then we sit down on the couch in the evening. So we spend more time in a chair than we do in any place else. Is that right? Okay. So we're now actually going to be using the chair as a meditation tool or a meditation instrument. And we're going to do it in two ways. One is getting up out of the chair and the other one is sitting back down in the chair. I think Scott's heard about this before, right? Yeah, okay. So how many times, DJ, do you get out of your chair on a regular basis? I mean, at work, what, 10, 15 times while you're at work and another five or so times in the evening? Yeah, yeah. Actually, at work, I'm mostly standing, but um, I
1: say I sit down a couple of times at least at work, and then, yeah, in the evening... There's quite a bit of, you know, movement in terms of like getting up and and all that. So and and moving yeah, the postures, maybe getting a little bit of a snack or whatever. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I actually I had heard you talk about the chair practice before with um, other students. And it's uh, definitely something I think that I will perhaps incorporate a little bit more because it sounds quite useful. Um, But like that's that too, like knowing what the intent is, right? Like if before you get up, be like, oh, is this to go get a snack? Or are you just aimlessly kind of doing that? Or are you aware of your actions? But using that as an anchor sounds like a wonderful
0: strategy, but also just a fun toy to play with. Yes, it is. That's what I want to introduce it to you as a new toy to play with as opposed to a job to do. Because when I tell this to many students, they'll take it on as a task or a job, and then they come back the next week and report all their failures. <laughs> I <have> failed your <laughs> Don
1: Morato.
0: <laughs> so uh, basically what the practice is, is, is that uh, we ask ourselves the question of why do we get out of the chair? When you get out of the chair, why do you get out of the chair? Like when you get out of bed, what is the motivation for getting out of the chair? A lot of the times, we don't even pay much attention to that. In fact, it is quite common for people to get up out of their chair, go to the other room to get something. And by the time they've gotten to the other room, they forgot what it was to take aim after. Has that ever happened? (laughs) Yes. Right. Okay, so. Um, this technique that we're talking about is, is to bring us into the present moment at those times, which are critical. Like we've done something really unique and special with the body. It was there reclining, comfortable in a chair. And all of a sudden we're sprinting, we're on our way to someplace. Then in fact, we go automatically from the sitting posture to the walking posture. And we never even bother to go through the intermediate posture of just standing. So we're going to actually now incorporate that so that we begin to practice by whatever we're doing. And many times because of the swivel chairs and desk and all of that, we 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 swivel so that we can stand up to go. So start looking at where your Ooh. feet are planted. Where are your feet planted? What kind of stance do you have? How do you get up out of a chair and where are you going? So we're going to take a moment of mindfulness now to when we stand up, we're not going to start walking. We're going to stand up and reflect. Why did I get out of my easy, comfortable chair? One of the possible answers is, well, I got up out of that chair because it wasn't as easy and comfortable. I've been spending too much time there and my butt hurts. (laughs) So that's a really legitimate reason to get out of the chair. Oftentimes though, we're going someplace. We get out of the chair to go someplace. And here we're going to stop and reflect. Why do I get out of the chair? What's so important that I'm actually going to get out of the chair to go someplace. I'm going to leave my nest, my comfortable environment, my safe, secure chair. I know it's safe and secure because I've been spending so much butt time on that chair, safe and secure. Why am I getting up? What are my motivations? What do I care about so much? And then after we register this, oh, well, I'm going to go coffee, and I'm going to go potty, and I'm going to go get this, and I'm going to go get that, and I'm going to return to my chair. So now we've got a list of things. And then we start to move with that intention on the mind. That basically what I'm talking about is changing our mind from gathering into hunting mentality. Do you know the difference between a hunter and a gatherer? These were two jobs that humans had, oh, so long ago. Our whole society was built upon hunting and gathering. And by the way, when the hunters went hunting, when they made a kill, normally the animal was so large that they, mo- they moved their community to the animal because they couldn't move the uh, the animal carcass back to their community. So this is what caused nomadic life is that some of the game was too big to take home. And so we just kind of moved in wherever we killed out wildebeest uh, wilder bee or, or whatever. But hunting means that we're going looking specifically for something, especially if we catch the eye for the prey. Now we have to hunt it and have to chase after it. Gathering is different. Like, uh, the example is, and, and generally men have been given, uh, the task in our society to be the hunters, cause that was the natural way. And women are natural gatherers. Now this happens in the fact of how do men go to a grocery store versus how do women go to a grocery store? Men go to the grocery store by hunting. Right. We may, in fact, the wife may give us a list and we go get the items on the list and we may hunt all over the store for one of the items on that list and not find it and not recognizing that there's 25 different substitutes for that which you wrote down okay so how do women go to the store they go without a list they just go look oh i like that oh that'll be delicious and they go in they around and they just gather a bunch of stuff without actually looking for anything in particular so be sure then to start noting what mentality do you have when you get out of that chair are you going just to go shopping just to go looking just to go gather some stuff up with with little intention or do you have a particular hunting job to do yes scott go ahead
2: uh is this practice that you're describing in reference to uh the fear and dread sutta um it sounds kind of similar to the sutta where it says uh, when, before the Buddha was uh, completely awakened and he was just a bodhisatta. Um, so on uh, certain auspicious nights, he would experience uh, fear and dread um in, uh, in seclusion. And then mm-hmm. he the practice that he laid out was that um, whatever posture he's in, he will not change postures until he has absolutely suppressed the fear and dread so when he's sitting he won't he like why would i get up so he sits or walking
0: or standing or laying down um yes that applies that by the way sutta number four thanks for bringing that up because that fits in exactly with what we're talking about but it's not the only sutta that has this the postures right? that uh, in fact in the Sutta napate it goes this way the man is running down the road off going someplace and while he is running he gets a little tired and then he has the thought why should i be running I can, oh, I can yeah, 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 that one. I can get there. I can walk. And then he walks a while, and he sees a trade shade tree, and so he goes and he says, well, why should I keep walking when I can just stand in the shade? And so he goes and he stands under the shade for a while, and then he looks at the tree and he says, hey, this is a nice, comfortable place. I'll just sit down under this tree. And then... As he's sitting under the tree, he decides that he can make a little bed and he can lay down. Why should I be running when I can walk? Why should I walk when I can sit or stand? Why should I stand when I can sit? And why should I sit when I can lay down? Well, these are the four postures that you see. And uh, the question is, which one is going to be the more comfortable one? Because running is not a comfortable thing. We've got to actually be driven for some reason to go to run. What What would you run for? Would you run to go get a, a child out of a burning car? Would you run to go get a dog out of a car? Would you run to go get your briefcase out of a burning car? would you would you run to get a bottle of urine out of the car there's an old joke about that by the way from my family (laughs) and it has to do with beer in a jar was confused with a a sample taken to the doctor (laughs) so uh this is the question is what is it that's worth running for Now we can come back to, well, what's worth walking to? I'm sitting here in my comfortable chair. Why do I get up? Where am I going? What's the point? In other words, we start examining here our motivations. What's really going on here? Because oftentimes we'll get up and we'll go and we've forgotten what it was or we'll get up and we go uh, and we get preoccupied with something, but if we stop. And recollect, why am I leaving here? Where is this going? What's the point? And then we go to move and that stopping is also, uh, the, st- or the standing part has to do with the stopping because normally the get the, the swing of the chair, the getting out of the chair and the walking is almost one smooth movement. And we're going to make a break in that movement by making a stop. And so we're going to uh, to stand up, and while we're standing, we're going to reflect, what's the point? That in fact, uh, you may break out in a great big smile or even a belly laugh to recognize that you got no place to go. Why don't I sit right back down again? <laughs> what was the point of this? Why did I get up out of the chair? That reminds Why me did- of
2: the, the dog, the one where uh, I heard you say before in a video. That the Buddha um, pointed out a dog as a teacher mm-hmm. and the the dog would get restless and it would start to uh, circle, circle around the place. Yeah. And then just to sit back right in the
0: same place it was. <laughs> then lay right back down where he was. Yes, you'll yeah. see that dog often. Now, um, the idea was that this dog was somehow sick like with mange or something, and he just could not get comfortable while he was laying down. But in fact, I, since that sutta, I've been observing that dogs actually do that. They'll be laying ham- comfortably, normally curled up. And in fact, we've got an area out in the yard that people have been using now for a while with, with trucks. And... Uh, Rain and dirt and movement of the truck and all of that, the dirt is easier to stir around and so the dogs have gotten five or six little doggy holes dug out in that area of the yard. And there they are laying in in their little uh, hole, cool, comfortable, in the shade, uh, right buried into the ground of the dirt. And yet Lucky will get up, walk around that hole. And then lay right back down in it, (laughs) which is exactly the way that the human mind works, that we'll get up and we'll go around doing something and then we won't finish it or whatever. We'll just lay back down again. Okay. So start watching that sometimes we get out of our chair. Sometimes just to get away from it, just to walk around and then come back and sit down, but at least know that that's what we're doing because often we do that mindlessly. We're not watching what we're going or what we're doing. So then the next thing is, is that many students who start to practice this with diligence, they remember that they're going to stand after they get out of the chair about 10 or 20 steps later. They'll go all the way into the other room. And then they remember, oh, I was going to remember why I was coming. Okay. If that happens, if you remember it later, then the idea is to say, hot dog, I caught it. And so now we can stop and stand there and take a deep in breath and a deep out breath and then reflect why, what was it that was so interesting and exciting that pulled me out of the chair? without me being even mindful that I'm practicing now, getting up and standing before I walk. And now we can proceed on. And pretty soon we can do it nine steps away from the chair. Sometimes we can do it five steps away from the chair. And then sometimes we can begin to practice so that when we get up, we do that. Now, here's a a side story, is that I recommended this to a student many, many years ago five, six, something like that. And my good friend Tun, who is from Estonia, he lives by the way, not far from here now. And he spent about six months living here at the house. So while he was here, we had this story. Um, and so he started practicing that. And so because I was already teaching the students, I was doing it too. And he was on the other side of the porch here. And so we would watch for each other that if he got out of the chair, is he going to stand or is he going to get up and go? And he was doing the same with me. It's a kind of a little game that we were playing. Hey, can you remember when you get out of the chair that you're going to get up and stand up and not walk? So this actually, if you think about it, this has to do with where you're going to plant your feet. Because if you get out of the chair with the intention of walking, you're going to step different than if you get out of the chair with the intention of just standing. So start paying attention to what the body is doing with this. This is a very interesting game, by the way, is to figure out your motivations. Why would you bother to get out of that comfortable chair that you're in?
1: So, Don Morado. Yes. It sounds like what you're doing in this is that you're placing all intentions and all choices within the larger intention of mindfulness and and training the mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, if you've heard me before talk about that if people have a, a practice of one hour sitting or so uh, a day, which is normally what's recommended after you get out of a retreat... Once you've gotten started that doing it an hour a day, except that the problem with an hour a day is that the human mind only has about a 20 minute extension, uh, or attention span, unless it can be trained for a longer intention span. This is actually part of what we're practicing is to train that attention span to do longer so that you can sit for an hour. But most students in their first couple of years don't have the attention span to sit for an hour. And so without them really knowing it, 30 minutes or even 15 minutes into, or 20 minutes into the practice, their mind will go dull. The thoughts will be, when is the bell going to ring? the body becomes uncomfortable sitting there and they're doing in this sitting practice that they're practicing everything that's opposite to what the Buddha teaches. They're not gladdening the mind. The mind has gotten dull. They're not paying attention to their breathing. Their breathing gets shallow. That in fact, the mind can get into a state of dullness and shallowness so that you begin to have really dreamy experiences that you don't quite understand at all. And so we label it as, oh, that must be a past life experience, la did I? And in fact, nothing is just an old, dull, kind of dreamy state that we've gotten ourselves into. And so practicing for a long time is not necessarily a good thing. What we need to do instead is practice often. To practice often. I have one time that I have an example of that not being true except that it was and that it it had to do with a great big waffle that I didn't want to eat because in Thailand they put corn in waffles and I'm a good southern boar and you don't put your corn in waffles and so here's lucky wanting that waffle and so I trained her with one waffle and she still performs that trick what is it we call it give me five where the dog will raise their paw up in the air like this okay And I taught her with one waffle to do that trick, but it took about 20 minutes. That waffle lasted a long time. It was a big waffle and small pieces. And and over and over and over again, she got a piece of waffle when she had raised her paw. Guess what? She does that all the time. Anytime she wants something, she'll come up and she'll raise that paw. So she learned that trick and she learned it pretty quickly. Humans are not quite as good as dogs. We don't train so quickly. And so uh, that practice of doing things over and over and over again is the key, though, to do it once and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. So sitting for an hour is not necessarily going to build that repetitive thing in, because after all, people have the idea that you start here and then you go down like that into some deep state, right? And the whole better way to do it is up up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Why? Well, think about the dog and the training of the dog. That every time that the dog did what she was supposed to do in this training, she got a reward. So we need to start rewarding ourselves over and over and over and over and over over again. This is why we bring this one-hour sitting meditation and break it up during the day that I would say that, in fact, the uh, uh, the first place that we would break it would be back at that 20-minute limit. That 20 minutes seems to be a very, very standard good time for people who are practicing to actually practice. But after 20 minutes, the mind's going to get dull. So we need to start with that. But then we can say, wait a minute, three times a day at 20 minutes has some value, but maybe uh, for 10 minutes, six times a day would have even more value. Up to the ultimate, I would say it'd be five minutes, 12 times a day, every hour. Then in fact, we can pick which hours we're going to do this because there's some hours where it is not convenient. But if you are at a job and you work for a full hour and then, uh, without taking any break at all, you work for another full hour, you're going to be really tired. And the third hour is going to be useless, maybe even the second hour. But if we break our time up in the sense of practicing for five minutes and then do the job for 55 minutes and not worry about the meditation, not worry about the fact that the whole, the thoughts are unwholesome or whatever is happening, we're just going to get ourselves back into a good safe every five minutes or for five minutes, once an hour. Why? Well, think about that. Having a state of joy and happiness 12 times a day? Wow! <laughs> Very few people have. Even the guys who were practicing for one hour, they may get joy for 10 minutes or so, and then the rest of that hour is kind of wasted. But now we're actually going to, and, and not only that, but we have that intention. If I have an hour to sit, then I can kind of lollygag around. I can kind of meddle around for a while and then maybe practice for three or four minutes and then meddle around again. And now I want the bell to ring and my legs are getting tired and all kinds of things are happening in that hour. But if we come into it for five minutes saying, in this five minutes, I'm going to intentionally get the mind in a really, really good state. I'm going to gladden the mind. I'm going to throw uh, out the hindrances Take a deep breath and be here now and enjoy the safety, security, and comfort and become satisfied right here, right now. Okay, so we can practice that for five minutes and kind of get into the flow of being able to do that. So this is also an introduction now to the other part of the chair, the other side of the story for the chair, and that is what do you do when you sit down? Why do you sit down? What's the point of sitting down? Well, we can easily answer that is, is that we take a load off. It's tiring to stand. Okay, so we can say that, all right, if the chair has that quality of the body that it that is more comfortable to sit in a chair, that we can, in fact, uh, be more relaxed and comfortable in the chair, then instead of just taking the load off of the feet, we're also going to take a load off the mind. That this is yet a new opportunity, maybe not five minutes this time, maybe only 15 or 20 seconds to take a deep breath and say, well, finally I'm home. Oh, I can relax again. I don't have to be up and out and uh, and active. I can sit here without going. See, a lot of times we'll sit down and immediately go to the keyboard or the knitting needle or whatever now what we're going to do when we sit down is we're going to go home we're going to come and bring the mind back to a state of homeostasis back to a state of feeling well-being i'm glad i sat down wow what a relief it is i can take a deep breath and just relax (sighs) homeostasis kind of sounds like staying home Mm mm-hmm or arriving home what do you do after you've been on a journey right uh, what do you do i mean you've been out on the journey like going to the airport and all of this baggage you got to worry about your goods and you got to worry about the timing and you've got to worry about uh, all kinds of stuff so when you arrive at home you set those bags down and you either go and lay on the bed or get onto a couch and you relax okay So in that regard, we're going to do that as if we have been on the longest journey of 30 miles. Up two, three, four for 30 miles. And now I'm going to be able to sit down and relax. Okay, so this is the way that we begin because maybe your footfalls have not done 30 miles, but the mind is probably going even further than that. And so when we sit down in the chair, we're actually going to bring our meditation. So we're actually practicing intentionally five minutes, once an hour. We're also now, every time we sit down in the chair, we're going to intentionally practice for about 15 or 30 seconds to remember I'm home. I can take a deep breath. I can relax whatever reason that I had for sitting down. I'll be able to do it better because I'm relaxed now. I'm full of joy now. I can, oh, nothing to it. That email now is easy peasy. Not a problem. Why? Because the mind is in a wholesome state, and when the mind is a wholesome state, then the papers or the email is going to be filled with wholesome thoughts. And that's the way we want to any email that you ever send, remember that it's always wholesome. Even when you're complaining, you do it with, uh, you know, 10 sentences of praise followed by, and you might want to think about. And so that's the way to do it rather than complaining all the time. That in fact, this is also a possibility of recognizing that you have been complaining while you were out walking. And now that you're sitting down, you can actually stop complaining. We could stop it, to sit down ah, and get yourself into a good state. So the chair becomes a meditation object, if you can remember. And now we've got that anchor, it's going to uh, remember, I mean, DJ, you said that you'd heard this before. And it was a good, interesting piece of information. But now that we're covering it again, you can say, okay, now I have the intention. I'm actually going to start practicing the chair meditation.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. To actually practice it. It's got enormous value. But in the beginning of it, especially getting up out of the chair, you're going to fail time after time after time after time. You're going to fail at it in the sense that you can't remember to stop and stand when you get out of the chair and that stopping and standing is then going to give you a chance to reflect upon what's going on right now what was it that was so important that it pulled me out of my chair Mm, yeah
1: yeah that same sort of um i suppose spirit like I, i have practiced it with like the bed right and like before i like move or do anything like what is causing me to to do this like why why do i feel the need to do this when i can just sort of relax and Mm -hmm. stuff and I, i think sometimes i would practice like yeah with the chair just not with like as much intention um as like oh okay this is like um an an object to really uh use in that regard you know what i mean but um yeah more just coming back with each uh in breath and out breath that i remember (laughs) oh yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, oh scott i was just gonna
2: ask a question so um this um little chair practice thing um, would you say it's a segue to um noticing the habits of the mind so like when the mind becomes dissatisfied you can say it's metaphorically gotten out of its chair mm-hmm. or it, it's like, um, cause it seems like, um, th- that is the repetitive <laughs> cycle of it. Like, uh, you're satisfied, uh, with, with not much and, uh, everything's good, but then you start like looking for things that you need or, or, uh, for some reason, um you create like it's like you create the game of being dissatisfied just so you can go right back to not needing something again so mm-hmm. it's like it's like running around uh and like if it never sits down then then you end up in a mental asylum pretty much
0: <laughs> yes
2: exactly. like you're saying <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. but. that in fact we're driven uh the 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 analogy that both the Buddha and Dikku Buddha Dasa use, the analogy of being in jail or being in prison is uh, uh, a, a way of looking at it, but a better way of looking at it is the way that also the Buddha looks at the hindrances is is that you're a slave to them, that you're a right. servant, that you're an employee that doesn't get paid. But you still got to go do all of this stuff anyway. And that, um, well, we understand that there's a carrot and a stick, right? There's the motivation that pushes and then there's the motivation that uh, receives or draws you in. Okay, so our desires kind of draw us in and the fears are what push us. All right, so let's look at this particular part of the situation. Do you know what I mean by the word vicarious?
2: Vicarious
0: okay. the, as in living through some, something? One else, exactly. Yeah, okay. right. that, that happened with me, with my dad, because he played tuba and sousaphone in the U.S. Navy or one of the, the Navy, uh, excuse me, U.S. Army during World War II. And so when I, his child, get into the age group, he buys a trumpet, then he buys a uh, 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 a baritone horn, and then the tuba comes, right? That he was living vicariously, he really loved to go to the football games so that he could stand and see the band moving up and down the field, and he's got the mind that he's in that state. All right. This also is the primary motivating factor of why uh, the son will become uh, the heir to the whatever the dad is doing. So if the dad's a carpenter, he trains his son as a carpenter, et cetera, like this. Okay. and so this vicarious living is the issue now because it starts in parents at a young age. And it's generational in the sense that when you, these parents live vicariously to these kids, then those kids, when they grow up, are going to live their lives vicariously through their kids also, unless people are are trained differently. Okay, so now that we've got that set up, that means then that when the kid, when the dad or the parent comes into the room and sees the kid doing nothing. He wants to know why, because you're supposed to do, you're supposed to be better at being me than I am. You're supposed to be better than me than I am me, okay? So by having that mentality, we want our kids to look like they're being productive. Do your homework, clean up your room, cut the grass, go do something to prove to me, your dad, that you're as good as I am. Now that was a big point with my dad. I mean, this was something that I saw really, really strongly. If you reflect upon it, you might recognize it. Yeah, that happened with me as a kid a lot. Mm-hmm. All right, so that means then is that we're kids, we are trained to be slaves, to be servants, to go do what dad wants us to do because dad's trying to get us to be a better him than he was. And that's, and so the only possibility of a reward out of that, or the the fruit of our labors is is that at least Dad's not going to be kicking us for not doing it. Okay, so that means then that we do have this carrot and stick mentality, and that the mentality of kicking the child to go do something, is coming from this issue of the vicariousness, that the dad is unsatisfied with his life, so he wants to make sure that his kid is a better at living his life than he is. Yes, Marie, go ahead. Uh, Can you just give us a a synonym of vicarious? Because I'm not sure I get the the word. Okay. Uh, Living his his own life through his son. Happens in sports. So, oh, yes. Oh, it happens so lose. much. Oh, sports, yes. And in politics sports. is another one. Yeah. I'm sorry, but did you. Um, uh, I can... Sports and politics are two. Yes. Places sports, where this happens yeah. I, I've lived. I've lived it with the sport. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so the politicians, okay, I, okay. they want their, okay. their son to be a better politician than he is. OK, which means get he it. gets more graft and more money and all of that kind oh, of OK. Stuff. OK,
2: and so, okay, no, I follow up perfect.
0: All right, so but these ex, these examples that we have are the examples of the child who is already old enough like with the sports or with the music or with the politics. But what I'm saying is that though this vicarious. Mentality starts much younger when the child is really little. Which gives in that child the motivation of doing what he's told to do because daddy will feel better, even if I don't. And so we live the life that way. Okay. so this is an important point that we're making here because we need to start looking at, well, what are our motivations? Is there a dad inside of me did I learn his rules and now I am in fact following the rules that my dad laid down for me to make me a better him not make me a better me. That you have to have that parental approval kind of thing. Which doesn't have much value when you're miserable. But in fact, to be honest with you, I didn't really want to be a tuba player. And when I got into university, I really realized that. Do you know how many professional tuba players are on the planet Earth right now? As they compared to professional violinists or professional guitar players? I mean, it's like for violin, it's like 100 to 1. Most, you know, uh, most big symphonies only have a tuba player part time when they're playing music that has a tuba part. A lot of music doesn't even have a tuba part. When I recognized that I'd recognize my head, dad had shoved me down a rat hole. That had <coughs> not a good ending to it. It didn't have a good ending for him. When he got out of the army, he stopped being a tuba player. And now he expects me to be a tuba player the rest of my life. And the thing, the best thing that I can wind up doing is being a high school band director. And when I recognized that that was my fate, (laughs) I said, we could do better than this. And so I got out of it. But I, but that uh, in fact, years later, in therapy with my mom, I actually got my mom and sister to go to therapy after I had gotten to the point that I didn't need it so much. And I shared this with my mom. That the reason that I didn't become a professional musician was because I didn't want to become a professional musician. This was something my dad wanted from me. But I also recognized that that training that he put me through was not all tuba. That he trained me, in fact, to be in a hurry. His profession had to do with walking. One of the things that he did was that he was a meter reader. Back then, they didn't have a car that you could drive around with that had uh, uh, some Wi-Fi or something that can connect. You, The guy had to go right to the meter and write down the numbers on the meter, which meant that he had to walk all over town. All right. And so he expected me to keep up with him. And I wound up being kind of in a race my whole life, trying to keep up with my dad. This was quite an insight for me to wake up to, to recognize that a lot of the anxiety was given to me as a bad gift.
2: Uh, Yeah, I I can relate to that. Like, um, it seems like... uh like growing up, um, the parent, or at least my parent, like trains you to perpetually be worried about something. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you got to think about this and you have to, so it gets to the point where there's an internal rule that if if I'm not worried about anything, my mind thinks, wait a second, something's missing. I, what am I not worried about right now? Mm-hmm. So I get worried, so, so it's strange. <laughs> like I get worried about not worrying about something. <laughs> <laughs> when there's nothing to worry about to begin with i mean or there might be a bunch of stuff to worry about but you, you don't have to uh, worry about them like you couldn't like simply not and like